0: They're a little bit, always a little bit vigilant. So all their senses are a little bit prepared to notice something that's slightly different. And that's not just olfaction, but also in hearing. So it's partly the acuity of their senses, I think, that describe these things you're describing, but it's partly their different attention to the things that are happening around us. Um, we're very focused as a species. We have very specific selective attention. and. I don't think their attention works that way.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the hearing acuity is well demonstrated by how far away they can be and hear a cheese wrapper opening. <laughs> right.
0: <Yeah>. And the <laughs> meaningfulness the of that. <laughs> right. Waiting. Yeah. It's like <laughs> a search image for them. Yeah.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my 7 Astronaut Tips to Improving Your Life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you, and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanexplorers.com. When just a few years back I was about to adopt a puppy for the first time in my life, a friend gave me a copy of Dr. Alexander Horowitz's book, Inside of a Dog. Its delightful writing and adorable doodles broadened my mind and prepared my heart for the little furball I'd soon be responsible for. And it made me eager to have her on the show. If you're a dog lover, you'll love Alexandra's mix of creative and scientific insights. An expert on what's inside the dog, as well as dog-human relationships, and much more, Dr. Horowitz is a cognitive scientist and professor of creative nonfiction writing at Barnard University in New York. She's built a career that blends language and neuroscience in some unique and powerful ways, and had to defy many stereotypes and conventions to get to where she is today, a respected scientist, national columnist, and multi-book author. My kind of gal. So let's explore our dogs and what they reveal about ourselves with Dr. Alexandra Horowitz. Alexandra Horowitz, if I may call you that, Dr. Horowitz, thank you so much for agreeing to join me on this podcast.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: I first came across you when I was contemplating bringing a puppy home, the first time I've ever had a puppy, and only the second time I've had a dog given my crazy work and travel schedule. And a dear friend gave me inside of a dog to read as a primer. You know, the, the dog would clearly be fine but it was clear I needed some help being ready for the puppy. <laughs> and, and it was a delightful, delightful read. But you didn't actually start your life, even professionally, in the dog world. And so I'd love to run the tape back and learn a little bit more about the young Alexandra and her early interests and influences and how that person became a lexicographer at Merriam-Webster, whatever that means. We'll have to touch on that.
0: (laughs) Sure. Well, thank you for reading and your nice (laughs) words about the book. I assume that puppy has grown up fabulously. Well, I think so, but I'm highly biased. (laughs) Well, I didn't start, as you say, thinking I was going to be a dog scientist or writer on dog cognition at all. I did grow up living with dogs, though. I mean, there were dogs in the house. And I think maybe the kind of root of my philosophical and scientific interest in dogs was just a kind of special sensitivity I had towards dogs when I was young. In other words, not something I think that's so unusual to me, really, in fact, is quite ubiquitous among children. I mean, why are all our books featuring animals as protagonists for children? It's because kids care about animals and are interested in animals. And I feel like I just never lost it. Right. And then I found ways in which I could more deeply pursue that question rather than just have the enjoyment of it. But in a way, I think that's where all of this started is just living with you know, Heidi and Aster and Barnaby and the various characters who were in our house and, and wondering about their lives, right? And then not really ever getting a good answer to what they were thinking or what they felt or what they wanted and leaving that, but coming back much later and realizing that actually, you know, you can bring science to those questions and becoming a scientist. But yeah, as you say, there are a lot of little side paths along the way and it was not linear at all <laughs> were you a city kid a suburb kid country i grew up in colorado in the foothills of colorado so pretty rural suburban and yeah. i went back to school uh, for college in my birthplace and my dad's birthplace philadelphia and i really do like living in cities and after penn I was, as you say, a lexicographer, you know, I was a philosophy major. Oh, I loved philosophy. I mean, I really, I just think it's a way of thinking more than, I wasn't a philosopher per se, right? I wasn't deeply engaging with philosophical inquiries the way people who are professionally philosophers are doing, but I really saw it as just a way of approaching questions. That just captured me. And I wound up at, at Merriam-Webster, I think because I also had a kind of side hobby of you know spending a lot of time with dictionaries. Like I like to read dictionaries, just, just read collect a dictionary? words. Like yeah. turn pages and read the dictionary. Yeah, turn pages and read a dictionary. <laughs> and it's sort of my husband will say, like it's said, there's a there's a story in there, right? But you just have to find the story. And I loved collecting words and so forth. And so I, you know, as a philosopher, maybe I wasn't highly employable after college, but I applied to Merriam-Webster, which is a dictionary company in Springfield, Mass still is around. And they hired me as a lexicographer, which is a definer. So I was one of the definers for the 10th Collegiate Dictionary.
1: But there was a 9th Collegiate Dictionary. So what new things need to be defined to create
0: a 10th? Oh, all sorts of new things. Oh, yeah. There are all sorts of new words. So words are kind of simmering and then bubbling up and then reaching sufficient consciousness that people want to look them up in the dictionary. And they had some ideas, quasi-scientific ideas, about when a word had achieved enough traction in our language use that it should be put into the dictionary. So you would gather citations of words in use in, in prose, and in written prose. Then eventually the definer would go and look at all those citations and say, oh, well, this is what this word means. So we define new words. We'd add new senses of other words. That's constantly happening since, you know, a word changes its meaning, has an extended meaning that it didn't have before. Occasionally a word would be dropped, but that's kind of it. Sometimes there were corrections to be made, but there were a lot of new words added and new senses added. And that was a great project because it was, you know, basically a research project. If you think about it, it was just words as the subject.
1: So the definitions came largely from context and usage.
0: Yeah. So what we would do when we're not defining is read profligately, right? Anything. It could be advertisements. It's the New Yorker. It's the insurance salesman's you know, trade journal. It's everything. It's science. It's art. And noting words that were unusual, but mostly words that were kind of well used in the context. So the context revealed what the word meant in some level. Yeah. And so we're characteristic of the word. And so then we gather, you know, instances across all these different types of media of how the words are used. The definer's job was to find the commonality and make a definition for it. I'm really good at the at the game dictionary. <laughs>
1: <Okay>. <laughs> Where yeah, I'm not taking you to... on it. In... Yeah, no, we're, not, we're not going there. <laughs> but I have to say one of my personal favorite podcasts to listen to in my treadmill moments is a way with words, which is two former lexicographers digging into your know, odd phrases someone remembers from their grandmother and you know, where did a certain usage come from? And so I, maybe I'm a lexicographer, Monke, who knows?
0: Yeah. <laughs> your, your seventh career. Yes. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah, not hardly. So tell me how lexicography at Merriam-Webster turns into graduate work in
0: cognition at UC San Diego. What triggers all that? In retrospect, I can kind of draw the trend there. But what it was is that, as I said, we were always reading material that was going to be mined for examples of word usage. And one of the things we read was The New Yorker. I got very interested in being a New Yorker reader. I loved their pieces. And so my next step was to just apply to The New Yorker in any capacity. And I got hired at The New Yorker as a fact checker. Which was a great gig and you work with writers to confirm all the facts in all the pieces so you're this kind of jack of all trades because you are constantly moving between different subjects is it genetically engineered tomatoes is it Pavarotti what is it and Oliver Sacks was a writer there I loved his work I got to be kind of assistant checker on some of his work And I thought that's what I want to do. I want to do that. (laughs) So give
1: us a nutshell on Dr. Sachs' field for those who are not familiar with his work.
0: So Oliver Sachs was a neuroscientist, neuropsychologist, and neuroscientist and author, and kind of empathetic and philosophical and thoughtful author. And he he did so many impressive things in his life. People might know him from the movie Awakenings, which was the story of his discovery of the drug that could. Awakened patients who had been in a kind of uh, stupor for many years as a result of a low level of neurotransmitter in their brains. And he became famous for kind of describing and, and really showing an empathetic understanding of patients with very unusual disorders, disorders that told us something about the brain or about being human. So he was a scientist. He was a philosopher. He was a writer. He's become a a very well-known writer. And anyone who hasn't read his books go out and find the man who mistook his wife for a hat, which describes one of these conditions. And you'll, I think also be entranced as I was. So I thought I want to study the brain. I want to know more about the brain. And I wound up looking for programs in cognitive science, which was a kind of philosophical, psychological neuroscience, uh, interdisciplinary approach to thoughts, to uh, how the brain works, how we think and who we are. I wound up in that program with a special interest in non-human animals who can't tell us what they're <laughs> thinking and how what they're feeling and who they are. And very slowly over time, wound up studying dogs. So it's a long circuitous path. And I say to people who are interested in science, I mean, it's great if they have the interest now. I didn't have an interest I could Pin down and pursue. But what I did always do was just pursue the interest that was in front of me. Was it, I liked to read words in the dictionary, so I went there. Was it, oh, I liked this magazine, so I went there. Oh, it was this one writer at the magazine who inspired me? I wanted to educate myself in that direction. Yeah. And so it kept just kind of being attentive to and chasing the thing that interested me. And I got lucky that opportunities arose, you know, that allowed me to pursue these courses of study, essentially.
1: Was it hard to persuade a doctoral program in cognitive science to take you with a not particularly pertinent undergraduate degree? How'd you overcome that barrier?
0: They actually were pretty interested in non-scientist undergraduates, right? They were interested in different perspectives as befits the interdisciplinary approach of the whole program. But I also did spend my last year as a fact-check taking post-baccalaureate classes at Columbia in psychology ah. and neuroscience and computer science so that I learning a few coding languages so that I had some understanding so yeah. that I wouldn't be completely at sea and I think that was useful it also honed my appreciation of what the program was I was going into which I think is super important a lot of people will apply a lot of young scholars as undergraduates will apply to graduate school just sort of not really knowing what it's going to be like and not and just as the next step that's okay, yeah. I guess. But I mean, the really driven graduate students were the one who ones who had some understanding of what they were getting into, right? It's not just an extension of an undergraduate yeah, degree yeah. in any way yeah. and had a real reason to go. And so it did kind of help me firm up my reason to be in that kind of program.
1: Well, it strikes me as using the Girl Scout principle. You also took the initiative to make sure you were prepared or better prepared mm. than you would have been if you just like you say, go on the next step right in.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, i had been a good student. Like I always, that's what school taught me was, you know, here the they were laid out sets of things you need to do in order to fit the brief, right? To complete the assignment. And then even when I didn't have assignments in front of me, I still viewed projects that way. Okay, let's yeah. lay out what the things are I need to do to complete this, to get to the next step. And so, yeah, I guess you're right. I did that there.
1: Yeah. You know, you talk about that transition a bit in Inside of a Dog, and I remember my reaction when I read it. You're welcome to debunk this paraphrase. Was uh, that you parachuted into <laughs> you parachuted into a domain that was, you know, very much uh, dominated by male primates, both on the faculty and as preferred research subjects. And you talk a bit in Inside of a Dog about, yeah, but I don't particularly want to do apes. I'm really fascinated by dogs and got a lot of poo-pooing about it's dogs. You know, we know about dogs. What's to know about dogs? We got dogs. Exactly. Tell me about that. Because what was your nugget of vision there that propelled you through that
0: and let you persevere through what had to be a lot of pushback? I I can't say, frankly, that I was so sure that it was the right thing to do. But I, and I started out thinking, yeah, you study non-human primates cuz they are closest relatives you study the big brain species because they're most likely to have brains like ours and then i just wound up it was because of what i wound up looking at it was I, I was looking at a certain behavior that i thought was going to be revelatory about the animal's mind and that was play behavior and the reason i was interested in play behavior was because in our development play is just a huge social uh skill mastering context so we We play with each other to learn about other minds. We play, we learn the difference between real and pretend. We're playing with notions of time, roles of people, all sorts of things that we learn. There's all this negotiation in play. So we learn a ton in play. And I thought, in fact, we learn some of the most interesting things like our sense of self and who others are and the difference between ourselves and others, which we aren't born with. We kind of come to understand through interactions like play. I thought, let's look at play and non, other non-humans and see if they too seem to have that appreciation of self and other. And you, you know, all animals play. I mean, really play is quite widespread across taxa, but they don't always play right when you want them to play, right? If you So if you're looking to study play behavior, you can't just poke someone into play like a researcher might do in a lab or expect that they're going to be playing when you come to observe them at the zoo or in the wild. As anyone who goes to the zoo knows, yeah. Yeah. Mostly they want to hide from you probably if you're watching <laughs> them at the zoo. So and they can now thanks to the right types of enclosures. But I lived with a dog and it did take me a long time to realize I'm taking her out, you know, two three times a day to play. There is my playing animal. I should be studying them. I too had that bias that they were not Maybe the interesting subjects of science because they weren't closely related to us and us big brained uh, species who we always hold up as the pinnacle of cognition and intelligence. But they were so clearly the right species in this case. And I did, I thought I had, you know, people, it was not obvious. People raised their eyebrows at me, but to their great credit, they were also able to say, all right, just convince me, like show me some examples okay, of yeah. play, see what you see in there. How is it connected to understanding of minds? And they were sufficiently convinced that they let me go on and do that research program and then eventually defend a dissertation entirely on on dog play. And this started with the famous pumpernickel who you feature yeah. in inside of a dog. Yeah. It's so nice that you know her, right? That people who've read this book know something about her.
1: (laughs) Oh, I I feel like I do. And I have to say, I'm going to invite you to amplify on this subject because it was one of the parts of the book that just made me laugh and dazzled me. And it sticks with me every time I take my little pups out for a walk. I think a lot of people, when they're taking their dog for the walk, it's like, oh, my God, do we have to smell every other blade of grass? Hmm. But when my guys just start motoring along with their noses to the ground, I think checking out every single blade of grass, forget every other one. I keep thinking back to your description of pumpernickel walking along and that you used as the entree to talk about how extraordinary dog noses are. So give us a nugget of the,
0: the wonder and marvel of a dog's nose. I mean... They're so much more extraordinary than our noses. And we have perfectly good noses, frankly. I mean, we should smell more than we do. But the dog's nose, their nostrils work separately so that they can get different little pictures. Like stereo. <laughs> of stereo. Like stare, so that they can experience smell and stereo, right? So they know not only what a smell is, but where it's from. They have, the reason we can smell is because we have these cells called odorant receptor cells at the back of our nose. We have a few million and they have... Uh, you know, hundreds of millions more olfactory receptor cells. So not only can they smell more things, but more types of things. Their entire snout is designed with these elaborate curvy bones in order to kind of not just warm the air and take out particulates, but to kind of hurry it along to the back of the nose to be smelled. And they also exhale through the side slits of their nose so that the air that's rushing in the picture of the odor world that they're seeing isn't exhaled out yeah. just the way it is in our nose if you know if you have a smell in your nose you want to get rid of it, you just breathe out right you get yeah. the odor literally out of your nose but they don't want to do that because it's their vision so they exhale it through the side slits Which allows them to have like a kind of circular breathing sort of olfaction and that's the beginning of imagining their view of the world their anatomy is all designed for that and if you look at your their behavior like you have you see that their behavior also demonstrates this they completely recognize each other through smell they then know if somebody's been there through a smell that's laid on the ground after they've left right you know when the person is no longer there they know if someone's coming because of a smell that's coming on the breeze. So suffice to say, I think they are olfactory creatures primarily.
1: Yeah. So you just touched on one of the other questions I was going to ask you. It's two things, and I'm going to phrase that as as how do they know, because I'm projecting on them, but I'm curious also as to whether knowing is what they actually do. But they sure seem, my dogs sure seem to know if we've been out in the car. By golly, they seem to know when we're getting close to home. Mm. even in the car with the windows up. So I'm wondering what else are they queuing in on that might give them that sense. And again, even if we're you know, sitting quietly inside on a, you know, winter's day with all the windows closed, I swear to goodness, they know when somebody is coming to their door, uh-huh. like people walk up and down our road all the time. That's fine. We don't care. You're coming to my door. They
0: are <laughs> on it, man. How does, what is that? How do they do that? Right. I'll be honest and say, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's a combination of types of perception. One is smell because even in a context where we feel like there are no smells happening, there are smells happening. Like if there's air that can get in to your car, then there are smells that are coming into your car and we're just not attentive to them so much. And certainly we're not looking out for them, right? So I think they partially navigate through smell. And, and there have been a couple studies that show that they can navigate with smell. And I think their navigation abilities through other means haven't been that well-tested, but they are extremely good navigators and smell is only one of the means by which they can do that. So they'll have olfactory landmarks, you know, when they know when they'll pass something that has a certain kind of smell, something that's continually a type of smell, and certainly can find their way home through smell from from a distance away. Now... In addition to any olfactory cues that are happening, something like people walking by suddenly coming towards your door. I mean, their hearing is good. It's not they have higher frequency hearing than we do. It's not like superpower hearing, I think, but they're attentive to this type of thing. So most of what's happening for our dogs is what's happening for our dogs right now, which is they're just lying here near us. And they're waiting for the next thing to happen, right? (laughs) You know, they're resting. They're not actively engaged in something right now. But another way of putting that is they're a little bit, always a little bit vigilant. So all their senses are a little bit prepared to notice something that's slightly different. And that's not just olfaction, but also in hearing. So it's partly the acuity of their senses, I think, that describe these things you're describing, but it's partly their different attention to the things that, are happening around us, um, we're very focused as a species, we have very specific selective attention, and I don't think their attention works that way. Yeah,
1: well, you know, that the hearing acuity is well demonstrated by how far away they can be and
0: hear a cheese wrapper opening, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And the meaningfulness meaning the of that, right? They're <laughs> yeah. waiting, it's like Ooh, a search God. image for them, <laughs> yeah, they can. They know if I uh, if you pick, just take the leash just off. Oh, completely. Yeah, just, slightly. Just just slightly remove it from the hook. No, it on didn't it jangle at all. Yeah. yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. As wondrous as dogs are, and and you and I clearly are both total dog lovers, you know, your work goes far beyond all the wonderful and amusing ways that we interact with them and are dazzled by them and bemused by them, and there are some distinctly not heartwarming dimensions. Hmm. to our relationship to dogs. I was most recently reading Our Dogs Ourselves and came across this very blunt line that took me aback, which is not perfectly quoted, but that my dog has the legal standing of my sofa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and if I bought the dog from a breeder or a pet store, it came with a guarantee rather like my refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And that just set up such a cognitive distance for me between how I feel about the two animals that live in my house and what technically legally as a society, what we have deemed they are. Can you talk more about that?
0: Yeah, and this is something that I've written about more as just over the years, as I've started thinking more and more about dogs and have researched dogs for a long time. I'm always dealing with dogs in society, you know, dogs who come to my labs, come with their people, come with their owners, right? They leave with their people. We don't keep dogs when we study dogs. And I live with dogs and I even test anthropomorphisms we make make of dogs. So I'm always looking at that nature of the relationship between person and dog. But over time, I've just became so surprised at the fact that while we consider them members of the family, something like 80 something percent of US dog owners consider their dogs members of the family, not just adjunct, not just sofas, not just objects. Not my refrigerator. No, exactly. And yet, the law treats them as things, and they have the status of property. And this, you know, we hear about this in cases where something's gone really wrong, and somebody's dog is is injured or, or even killed by somebody else, for instance, and you find out that that dog has a replacement value, and the replacement value is the value, as you said, that you purchased them for. Or maybe if you got them from a rescue organization, right, what you paid to get them out of the rescue organization. So, and we think, well, that is incommensurate with this member of my family, right? Um, and there are all sorts of these other weird repercussions as a as a result of this status as things, as property. It's that we can alter them in various ways and people do alter them in various ways. We can crop their ears and dock their tails and do other cosmetic things to them that they are not asking for, but that their owners think are appropriate for one or another reason. We usually spay and neuter them, although I have opinions about whether that should be all the time and who should do it. And that's that's where we'd get a lot of responses. Um, if we <laughs> want a lot of <laughs> negative yeah, feedback on the yeah. show. The
1: view and practice in the United States is not a universal common practice. Absolutely even in among the developed
0: nations. That's right. There are a lot of different opinions and there are lots of ways to think about it, which I think is yeah. is useful for us to think about. You know, they can be sold, right? I can sell my, if I have a valuable dog, I can sell my dog to somebody else. Uh, somebody could take my dog as a payment for a debt, you know, all these weird things about their being objects. And also they don't have any rights of any sort. So, right. They can be injured in various ways and there's no compensation for that, right? There's we have the yeah. right to do with that property like you could do with your sofa. You can sit on it. You can throw it out. You can, you can give it away. It, you can give it away. You can abandon it, basically. And most of those things you can do with dogs as well. And that's very strange. And, I, and I've and i written about it because I want, to, I want all those people who are so interested in the minds of their dogs, and rightfully so, I think, who read that first book of mine to also be thinking, well, shouldn't our law reflect? what our culture feels about these creatures which is that they are interwoven into our lives they're not just objects that we consider property and that we should buy and sell and otherwise not be concerned with they are sentient beings who are meaningful in human life
1: and are is the moral and ethical fiber of our law up to that standard in a sense
0: Yeah, I think it has to catch up with us, with things that we already know. And it's surprising for people to hear, in fact, that dogs are property. And sometimes they'll say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah." you know, I mean, of course, what else are they going to be? And there is a big debate about how you could change that status. But I think it's a bait we should wade into, not just forget about.
1: Yeah, it really surprised me. I maybe vaguely knew it, but you brought it to the foreground in a way that really had a huge impact. Another point you make in in our dogs ourselves that I'd love to have you explain. I'm just a geologist, I'm not sure I understood this. Is you say that behave you're talking about the behavior of dogs and I think getting at trying to get at what's the native behavior of a dog of any mixed or pure or other breed is their intrinsic behavior and mm. how does that relate to the behavior that the dog is manifesting? But the line, the line you had that was so great was that behavior emerges from that precious set of genes waltzing out the door and into the world. And it made me wonder: is it your sense that the nature, nurture, balance or blend is similar, the same for dogs and humans?
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. I do think it's it's similar for dogs. They are a genome which has experiences right? As soon as the genome manifests itself in an organism, creates an organism, the organism is interacting with the world. And however complex those experiences are, we want to think that they are, the flatworm and the dog and the human are all having experiences, meaning like they're interacting with the world and getting responses from that. Responses that are going to be mediated by the level of complexity of their sensory receptors and how how cognitive they are. But nonetheless, in all cases, they're interacting with the environment and it's going to change them. And that's how it works with us as well. So I don't think there is any important difference there.
1: Interesting. And then you also talk about in the lots of fascinating things I found in society's relationship with dogs back to the move towards pure breeding and the move towards dog shows and sort of the development of the industry, which I had I don't know if I was more surprised that it sort of dates back to the United States to the Prohibition era or that it went even further back in Europe. But you talk about dogs as, as canvases on which we paint our biases, preferences and identities and, and how that manifests over different breeds and what we think of them and how we our presumptions about them.
0: It's, it's a really interesting point to pick up on. I mean, I think it, it manifests in a couple different ways in how we breed them. In other words, we do breed dogs, which on the very basic level, we like the look of in some way, right? And there are lots of tendencies that I could talk about that lead us to like the looks of certain things rather than others. Like we like the looks of things that look sort of like babies, for instance. That seems to be something that's roughly human on average.
1: But then in some breeds, the standard, in the breed standard world,
0: likes the pushed in face or likes the very creepy jowl. That's right, right. And so we breed in things that we like all the time, and often to the dog's detriment, to the dog's severe detriment. Right? With these very flat-faced dogs, are maybe wonderful dogs. That that's not the point I'm making. It's that they often have severe health problems and difficulty just in day-to-day existence. You know, breathing, for instance. Yeah. Um, some can't be birthed, but by cesarean section because the heads are so big. Because we like. Dogs that have like the big large heads. Yeah. So we, we have literally bred in to dogs over time. And probably since the beginning of our interactions with what we would call dogs or proto-dogs, we've chosen the ones we like the looks of and like let them survive and bred them and then discarded the rest in whatever way. And we're still doing that, which is fascinating to me.
1: But also with other traits like the terrier's trait to dig and the retriever's trait to Chase and fetch.
0: Yeah. You know, we have bred in a lot of functions that we like in dogs as well, but we're doing that less now than we were at, at some point in the past. And initially, there weren't these, as you mentioned, there weren't these what we now would call purebred dogs. That's a very recent Victorian era invention to have inbred dog lines to kind of separate uh, dogs based on their look and maybe function um, from each other where all of them are related to each other back to maybe the 19th probably, century in yeah. the oldest cases before that they would have been bred for function the dog who's the really good partridge flusher would be bred with the the one down the way that who's also really great at partridge flushing and and that's how you would get a dog that probably did have some physical characteristics that we would recognize in say pointers today but yeah. wasn't bred intentionally Just- with right with other members of the same lineage it was for function but we we really are doing that less and there is some conversation among my colleagues when we talk about well how should how would we recommend breeding go forward from our vantage point and perspective on it and we think well we should be breeding dogs to be to be what we're using them for which is companions dogs are not usually prepared to spend a lot of the day alone which is happening less now but certainly to be able to be okay by themselves they're social creatures but that's what we're mostly doing with them yeah many of them have a lot of tendencies and urges as a result of past breeding that isn't that useful in my urban environment my terrier and her enthusiasm to dig and chase things is a little more chaotic than with my other mixed breed dogs who don't have that who don't have that ancestry hard to (laughs) express abundantly in in an apartment in new york city (laughs) that's right it's it's more difficult and so should we be breeding if we were going to breed for function we ask oh should we be breeding for the thing we're asking them to do which is basically to be quiescent and hang out with us love us and be responsive when we look at them if i if i want to make it seem very dry profile (laughs) yeah
1: yeah you go on at some length about the, where the notions of breeds came from and both sort of the biological and the social construct of that and, and which breeds at various points in time have been cherished and revered and prized and which have been maligned. We've got, you know, in our society today, you know, the pit bulls often are sort of top of the heap for the maligned dog. Wasn't always so. Others have held that place of honor in the past. But it made me wonder, is the concept of breed as we know it and are using it, is there a breed that is more misunderstood than the others or is the underlying mm. concept of breeds mm. so flawed mm. that that's just kind of a meaningless question? Is it the breed itself or is it the way the dogs are socialized or is it just the aroma in the air of public opinion?
0: Right. Well, it is a little of that for sure, but I think it's the concept that breed determines behavior. So breed is going to completely determine uh, personality or and actions is flawed. That is flawed. There is, you know, there will be tendencies of breeds, but the tendencies aren't on the level of the types of actions that we see them doing. If a dog is a border collie and has a tendency to stay still and look for the sheep on the environment. If there are no sheep in the environment, the dog will still do that because it's not that they're looking for sheep per se, right? They're looking for a moving object of of certain distance and, and shape and size that will act a certain way when they interact with it. That's like their tendency. So when you have a dog that's maligned, a breed that's maligned now, like pit bulls, whatever they are, because by the way, we don't, when we malign pit bulls as a culture, we don't even know what we're talking about. It's it's dogs that are, are more or less actually pit bull, just have this boxy face, basically. What we're pretending is that they have a kind of inbred aggressiveness. And there's no such thing as that. That's guaranteed to manifest. That's guaranteed to manifest. And you can get data against that in so many different ways, like all the dogs who've lived their whole lives and never shown any aggressiveness you could also on the other side give evidence of dogs who have shown aggressiveness but all the dogs who have shown aggressiveness in life some of them would be pit bull type dogs some of them would be golden retrievers who were surprised by the child who ran at them from behind and hugged them too closely when they were feeling uncertain or having some pain and they bite the child's face like that's also an aggressive dog but guess what we think of the golden retriever as a dog who is never aggressive, but it's really good with children. That's what we think the breed designs in, but it doesn't. You can't talk about those types of features as guaranteed by a breed. Yeah, and you actually point out that some of the statistics show
1: that the most Frequent, unprovoked aggressions, if you will, are, are dachshunds. <laughs> right, right. They, I mean, they, if were, they looking... were not high on my fear list. <laughs> no, because you can pick them up and put it in your satchel. Yeah, yeah. And that's it. Yeah, that. we dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that hilarious. I want to loop back for a moment to this spay and neuter conversation and ask if you've had any chance or are there other colleagues who have studied dogs that have not been spayed or neutered side by side or in the right mixture with dogs that are fixed. I'm curious beyond editing the gene pool, yeah. what other things, what other behaviors or other traits are affected by that? Is that an answerable question?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there are, I don't study it. I have only, only written about people who do study these populations of dogs and the possibility of an effect of spaying and neutering. Well, I mean, if you think about what spaying and neutering are doing, right, taking out the gonads they're not just eliminating their ability to reproduce their genes. They're, they're also taking out all the hormones that are found in those gonads. And so those are hormones like estrogen and testosterone that we're somewhat familiar with that are part of reproduction, but they're also part of other very normal behaviors. So, you know, they're used, are involved in memory formation. They're involved in bone growth. They're involved in all types of things systemically. Not just they're not just about reproduction, and so when you take that out, other purposes in the body besides they have the sex of other function. purposes in the body, and this is why we don't all get vasectomies and hysterectomies when we're kids if somebody thinks right, like you're not going to have children because it actually has some other effect on the rest of our body, and similarly with dogs. So I mean, we just intellectually know that. Have there been studies looked at looking at the effect of say neutering? in a population of dogs and how it affects their like memory for a retention of a certain memory task. No, not necessarily, but Ben and Lynn Hart at UC Davis have done a very long-term study um, looking from the vet files at the, that very elaborate and prestigious veterinary school, looking at correlations between spaying and neutering status and rates of disease later in life. and what they've found is that there's not one answer, but there are much higher rates in some sexes and some breeds of cancers, of orthotic diseases, right which shouldn't surprise us since does that since mean bone disease bone diseases since they're since this involved in bone growth, right? Yeah and other types of things it's not the case for all breeds and all sexes, as I say, but there are repercussions that at least this group and others have been recording and discussing for quite a long time. And they continue to do research on that. And I think it's a very interesting question that we, as, again, as a culture, just like we should look at the property question and say, is that apt for us? We should look at this question and say, is this apt for every dog? Right. I mean, as a culture, we might have certain, reasons we wanna spay and neuter, I think reasons that have to do with our misbehavior, right? But we're making the dogs pay for it, which we can because they're our property, so we can alter them, right? The whole thing, it's all intertwined. But yeah, there are repercussions and the profundity of them is gonna differ by individuals and you can somewhat trace that by breed and sometimes it won't be capturable. If I hadn't neutered my dog Finnegan, would he have been, I'm never gonna know, right? There's no way to really compare his life course with with his parallel doppelganger. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's
1: something we often wish we could do even with ourselves, right? What if I had done that other thing? That's right. But I think you're making an interesting underlying point there that at least to be eyes wide open, that this is something in essence we are doing for our convenience. Yes. Not only not necessarily for the good of the dog, but clearly in some ways to the detriment of the dog and at least be you know, at least be morally and intellectually honest about the fact that this is a convenience choice.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And I think that, and I, many people are very frank yeah. about that. They say this is for my convenience. And I, but I just, I still want to say even past that point, you know, it's affecting someone other than you as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that and the dog might not have a say in it, might <laughs> not be able to articulate in any way that we can understand the meaning of it for them. But I think that as a species who has domesticated this other species, we are responsible, we are extra responsible for looking out for their interests. And this is a way in which I just want us to be more cognizant of their interests.
1: And I think I would add to the word cognizant, I, I think what certainly what I have felt as I've been reading your works is you're asking us or encouraging us to be more empathetic, being to being, not just dog, owner to dog. hmm
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm well, that's a nice way of looking at it. I think dogs can bring out a lot of empathy in us kind of automatically in a way that sometimes it's hard to feel with other people. Right, who are so complex? Is there a human being that doesn't melt when cuddling a puppy? Right, <laughs> right, right. Now we will hear from the one who <laughs> does not. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Open the coming out of the here. woodwork. <laughs> That's right, and I, so I think that capacity is there, and I think sometimes it just has to be channeled in a different direction. We think that uh, you know we're doing the right thing for dogs or for other animals if we and we haven't in that and then fill in the the unreflective behaviors that we've been doing for those animals for the last hundred years. So yeah, it really isn't just about dogs. It's about, you know, what does it mean to be keeping animals in zoos? And what about how our culture treats wildlife? And, you know, all these things, I think the dogs can be a lens through which we are reminded of the reality of all these non-human others around us
1: and even non-animal lovers i mean doesn't it get ultimately to the question of of humans and nature and yes what what humans and everything else
0: there's sometimes i hear this idea that we're like we've transcended as a species humans have transcended evolution right that we are somehow completely outside of nature i mean i think the coronavirus is a great example of how like look actually we're we're just as susceptible and not to big-brained mightier forces which we seem to think was so important but but to just like a highly evolving very adaptive virus yeah geez yeah you know we are really part of nature and we've been forgetting about that again for our convenience and not only should we for our own sakes be more attentive to it but for the sakes of those individuals right of whom that of the many billions individuals that we tend not to like consider part of the conversation. And of the planet
1: and the future of all those living creatures, plants and animals and bacteria alike, because as you'll hear every astronaut say, because it's so vividly clear when you look from orbit, absolutely every living thing on this planet in every place, however distant from each other they may seem to be, they are all interconnected. There's Mm -hmm. just you may not think about it and you may not act on it. And you might even not believe me as I say it, but I guarantee you it's true. I mean, what
0: great perspective you have, right? <laughs> Literal perspective. But I, you know, even just hearing you describe that, I think, assists people in remembering to kind of come out of, you know, our very closed sense of what the important things are and what we need to be attentive to and how we can feel very much in our own heads and how connected instead we are to all these other heads and types of heads.
1: Well, I think that kind of message comes through really vividly and clearly in your works. I must say it's centered on dogs and our relationship to them, but I mean, there's, there's a very much broader set of dimensions in what you're talking about and the way you present it makes that really wonderfully clear. There's a whole other phase of your life I want to switch to a little bit, and actually maybe let's do that, and then I want to come back and put you on the spot and ask you for a couple of gems of wise advice that you would Mm -hmm. offer to anyone who has or loves a dog. But in addition to all the work you're doing in your lab at Barnard, uh, I presume also teaching graduate and undergraduate classes and supervising would-be PhD students, you also teach creative nonfiction writing, which is a label that most people would think should Those words should not be in the same place together. So (laughs) tell me more about that and how you came onto it. And what is that class? Who are you helping and what are you helping them do?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's in the English department. I, I was asked by one of my colleagues to propose a class based on my having written several books, which basically I think come under this rubric of creative nonfiction, although I didn't think that's what I'm writing. But really all creative nonfiction is, is using kind of the mechanisms of fiction of story, of character, of scene development to drive a nonfiction narrative. And, you know, so many, looking back, there are lots of people who wouldn't have thought of themselves as creative nonfiction writers who really were, right? What they were doing is telling a great story about facts. And so that's what it is. And in fact, I've taught two classes. One was called Making Facts Sing. And it was all about taking- Making facts sing? Yes. I love it. It was all about taking what people thought of as very dry scientific facts, especially, and trying to make an inspired narrative out of them. And so these were things where people were not, unlike me, where I write about, when I write about dogs, I'm in the field, I'm familiar with the research. It's not super complicated research either, but I get to be the kind of translator of that in my works. I was asking students to take, to enter a field that they maybe just found really dry, you know, and boring, or maybe even a little bit incomprehensible, you know, to enter that field, find a little bit of information that they could hook onto and try to tell a story about it that engages them and others. And so that that class was fabulous because you get people really reaching outside their comfort zone, not just writing about, again, taking a perspective other than their own, trying to imagine outside of their ideas. And especially at Barnard's Women's College, Getting women, which already has a lot of strong scientists and people who women who will become scientists, but getting them to be comfortable saying, "You are know, like I don't like chemistry, but now I'm really interested in finding something in there that I can like." And I think that approach is not just a writing approach that's useful, but it's a kind of life approach that's useful. And the other class I teach is called New York in Ten Objects, and we again we take a quotidian, really ordinary object, and we try to create Compelling narratives around them. And these are objects that are characteristic for New York because we're in New York City. And it's also an audio, it's also a podcasting class. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, So we learn production skills and how to tell an audio story versus a prose story. And of course, as you know, they're very different. You can't just read what you've written and have it come off as an engaging audio story. So they're, again, working with sort of dry facts, you know, but they can always find some through it or of it. They can find some compelling narrative. Very cool. Very cool. Well,
1: I could tell you a personal story of making facts sing is I detested chemistry in high no. school I <laughs> started college as a foreign language major and, and switched to science. And the mandatory freshman chemistry class was told in stories. And I oh. won't give you the, the long version, but I can remember to this day, the professor wrote six little cryptic things at the top of the blackboard and proceeded to tell us the story of how chemistry had made that possible. One was ironing a shirt, and one was a greasy spoon, for example. And it was just, you know, the scales fell from my eyes, and I loved chemistry. It was That's fantastic. Complete turnaround. That that professor
0: deserves some kind of call out. Oh, seriously.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I would say, I think being a dog was incredibly informative from a scientific and factual point of view and utterly did not read like an incredibly informative <laughs> fact fact-laden book so you you clearly you. have this down pat do you
0: do the doodles by the way all of your I books do. are
1: decorated with these delightful yeah, doodles of dogs I do.
0: those are my doodles I, and I still feel always every time a little bit embarrassed to be putting them in the book but also like I want books to have this other dimension right of a little bit of levity and whimsy. whimsy yeah I mean yeah
1: yes a smile on your face every time you turn the page they're, thank you they're absolutely delightful so we're close to time here and we ought to come to a bit of a wrap up I often do a little bit of a lightning round with my guests just for giggles to throw some completely different things into the mix and if you will indulge me I'll do yours absolutely I probably can skip the one about dogs or cats because I suspect it's something <laughs> between dogs and both. <laughs> Beetles or stones? Stones. Ah. If you could go back in time, is there a period you would go back to?
0: Middle of the 20th century. Because? I just feel like we want to run it again a little bit better. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> What's your favorite junk food? Well, I, I was immediately... I'm going to tell you my first immediate thought, but I actually haven't had it for 20 years, which was Cheetos. I just oh. love it. That's the first thing that came to my head. So I'm going to stick with it, even though I haven't had it for 20 years. Oh, yeah. Come <laughs> on. Why not?
1: Same vein, dark or milk chocolate? Milk at heart, but dark is
0: what I eat. <laughs> <laughs> uh, got a favorite holiday? Birthdays, actually. Oh, right. I just like celebrating birthdays. We do have birthdays for oh, everybody. It's ridiculous. And that's what I like about it.
1: Oh, that's very fun. My favorite celebration is practice parties.
0: Practice party?
1: Yeah, like a practice on the 29th of December for New Year's Eve. So you have multiple multiple toasts and make sure you get the timing right when the real midnight. I stole the idea from a friend, but I love it. That's great. Yeah. And I guess closing points, what two best pieces of advice would you give to someone who either has a dog or is thinking of getting a dog?
0: If they have a dog, I think the most important thing to do is let them sniff as you you won't be surprised by that, but realize their dogs live in olfactory world. And that's like, that's how they see the world to not let them sniff is like, I say, driving past the Grand Canyon and jerking their head away. Right. Not letting them see. great, Great visual metaphor. Right. So that's important. And that means all the things, let them sniff all the things it's rewarding. And The other thing, if someone was thinking of getting a dog, I think would be to not be, I mean, I would say get a mix. I love mixed dogs because what helps with a mixed breed, even if you love a certain breed, which is great, is that you don't have preconceptions about who that dog is going to be. So you let them be who they are, right? And remember when you get them, they don't know about human culture and what you need or want from them, what you expect from them. They're trying really hard to, but they don't come in knowing that you don't sit on the couch or eat food off the table. So patience is due. I think it's easier with a dog where you don't already have some expectation of who they're going to be, because you know somebody has said this dog is going to be um, just going to be a great running companion and it will be quiet and sit at your feet while you're working. And then if they don't, you feel like they're wrong. They somehow are like a lemon right? (laughs) But they're not. They're just who they are. And so let them be who they are. Who are your current dogs? Uh, Finnegan is the eldest. Upton is a close second. They're both older dogs now. And our youngest is Quiddity, who is uh, still a puppy. All mixed? They're all mixed. They're very mixed up. Yeah. (laughs) They're all mixed breeds. (laughs) All rescues? All rescues, yeah, from different places and different times in their life. We got Finnegan when he was young and Upton when he was three and a half. Uh, He'd been returned to a place twice and he's a big dog. Uh, They're both very big. And then Quiddity, we got through a rescue, breed rescue organization, but she's a mix of 19 different things.
1: Delightful. Well, I'm relieved that my two have stayed quietly asleep on the floor beside me, and we've. I'm kind of to... sorry I
0: didn't get to meet them, though.
1: <laughs> well, we'll solve that. I'll bring them up okay. to camera as we close the interview. But I've every now and then had to redo bits of a podcast for the clicky clacky of dog nails on the floor. That's or the a jangle great sound.
0: Or... Oh, that's a great well, podcast po- you... sound. That could be like a theme, theme song. A <laughs> the purest sound engineer tends to feel it's a blemish on their skills. <laughs> I understand. I'll accede to that.
1: Well, Alexandra, thanks for all you do to help us understand and know how to love dogs and your delightful books and for, again, joining us today for this very fun conversation.
0: And it's been a real pleasure, Kathy. Thanks.
1: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplorers.com.